0: Chapter sixty three of I say no. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I say no by Wilkie Collins. Chapter sixty three. The defense of Mirabel. The discovery of the letter gave a new direction to Emily's thoughts, and so, for the time at least, relieved her mind from the heavy burden that weighed on it. To what question on her father's part had I say no been Miss Jethro's brief and stern reply? Neither letter nor envelope offered the slightest hint that might assist inquiry. Even the postmark had been so carelessly impressed that it was illegible. Emily was still pondering over the three mysterious words, when she was interrupted by Mrs. Elmother's voice at the door. "'I must ask you to let me come in, miss, though I know you wished to be left by yourself till tomorrow. Mrs. Delvin says you must positively see her to-night.' It's my belief that she will send for the servants, and have herself carried in here if you refuse to do as she asks. You needn't be afraid of seeing Mr. Mirabel. Where is he? His sister has given up her room to him," Mrs. Elmother answered. She thought of your feelings before she sent me here, and had the curtains closed between the sitting-room and the bedroom. I suspect my nasty temper misled me, when I took a dislike to Mrs. Delvin she's a good creature. I'm sorry you didn't go to her as soon as we got back. Did you seem angry when she sent you here?' "'Angry? She was crying when I left her.' Emily hesitated no longer. She noticed a remarkable change in the invalid's sitting-room, so brilliantly lighted, on other occasions, the moment she entered it. The lamps were shaded, and the candles were all extinguished. "'My eyes!' Don't bear the light so well as usual, mrs Delvin said. Come and sit near me, Emily. I hope to quiet your mind. I should be grieved if you left my house with a wrong impression of me. Knowing what she knew, suffering as she must have suffered, the quiet kindness of her tone implied an exercise of self-restraint which appealed irresistibly to Emily's sympathies. Forgive me she said, for having done you an injustice. I am ashamed to think that I shrank from seeing you when I returned from Belford. "'I will endeavour to be worthy of your better opinion of me,' Mrs. Delvin replied. "'In one respect, at least, I may claim to have had your best interests at heart. While we were still personally strangers, I tried to prevail on my poor brother.' to own the truth, when he discovered the terrible position in which he was placed toward you. He was too conscious of the absence of any proof which might induce you to believe him, if he attempted to defend himself. In one word, he was too timid to take my advice. He has paid the penalty, and I have paid the penalty of deceiving you, Emily started.--In what way have you deceived me? she asked.--In the way that was forced on us by our own conduct, mrs Delvin said.--We have appeared to help you without really doing so. We calculated on inducing you to marry my brother, and then, when he could speak with the authority of a husband, on prevailing on you to give up all further inquiry. When you insisted on seeing Mrs. Rook, Miles had the money in his hand to bribe her and her husband to leave England. Oh, Mrs. Delvin, I don't attempt to excuse myself. I don't expect you to consider how sorely I was tempted to secure the happiness of my brother's life by marriage with such a woman as yourself. I don't remind you that I knew— when I put obstacles in your way, that you were blindly devoting yourself to the discovery of an innocent man." Emily heard her with angry surprise. "'Innocent!' she repeated. Mrs. Rook recognized his voice the instant she heard him speak. Impenetrable to interruption, Mrs. Delvin went on. "'But what I do ask—' she persisted even after our short acquaintance, is this, do you suspect me, of deliberately scheming to make you the wife of a murderer?' Emily had never viewed the serious question between them in this light. Warmly, generously, she answered the appeal that had been made to her. "'Oh, don't think that of me. I know I spoke thoughtlessly and cruelly just now. You spoke impulsively.' Mrs. Delvin interposed, "'That was all. My one desire before we part—how can I expect you to remain here, after what has happened? Is to tell you the truth. I have no interested object in view, for all hope of your marriage with my brother is at an end. May I ask, if you have heard, that he and your father were strangers?' when they met at the inn? Yes, I know that. If there had been any conversation between them when they retired to rest, they might have mentioned their names. But your father was preoccupied, and my brother, after a long day's walk, was so tired that he fell asleep as soon as his head was on the pillow. He only woke when the morning dawned, What he saw when he looked toward the opposite bed might have struck with terror the boldest man that ever lived. His first impulse was naturally to alarm the house. When he got on his feet, he saw his own razor, a blood-stained razor, on the bed by the side of the corpse. At that discovery, he lost all control over himself, In a panic of terror he snatched up his knapsack, Unfastened the yard-door, and fled from the house. Knowing him as you and I know him, can we wonder at it? Many a man has been hanged for murder On circumstantial evidence less direct Than the evidence against poor Miles. His horror of his own recollections was so overpowering but he forbade me even to mention the inn at Zeeland, in my letters, while he was abroad. Never tell me, he wrote, who that wretched, murdered stranger was. If I only heard of his name, I believe it would haunt me till my dying day. I ought not to trouble you with these details, and yet I am surely not without excuse. In the absence of any proof, I cannot expect you to believe, as I do, in my brother's innocence. But I may at least hope to show you that there is some reason for doubt. Will you give him the benefit of that doubt?' "'Willingly,' Emily replied. "'Am I right in supposing that you don't despair of proving his innocence even yet?' "'I don't quite despair.' But my hopes have grown fainter and fainter as the years have gone on. There is a person associated with his escape from Zealand, a person named Jethro. You mean Miss Jethro? Yes. Do you know her? I know her, and my father knew her. I have found a letter addressed to him, which I have no doubt was written by Miss Jethro. It is. Barely possible that you may understand what it means. Pray look at it. "'I am quite unable to help you,' Mrs. Delvin answered, after reading the letter. "'All I know of Miss Jethro is that, but for her interposition, my brother might have fallen into the hands of the police. She saved him.' "'Knowing him, of course. That is the remarkable part of it.' They were perfect strangers to each other, but she must have had some motive. There is the foundation of my hope for Miles. Miss Jethro declared when I wrote and put the question to her that the one motive by which she was actuated was the motive of mercy. I don't believe her. To my mind. It is in the last degree improbable that she would consent to protect a stranger from discovery who owned to her as my brother did, that he was a fugitive, suspected of murder. She knows something, I am firmly convinced of that dreadful event at Zealand, and she has some reason for keeping it secret. Have you any influence over her? tell me where i can find her i can't tell you she has removed from the address at which my brother saw her last he has made every possible inquiry without result as she replied in those discouraging terms the curtains which divided mrs Delvin's bedroom from her sitting-room were drawn aside an elderly woman servant approached her mistress's couch "'Mr. Mirabel is awake, ma'am. He is very low. I can hardly feel his pulse. Shall I give him some more brandy?' Mrs. Delvin held out her hand to Emily. "'Come to me tomorrow morning,' she said, and signed to the servant to wheel her couch into the next room. As the curtains closed over them, Emily heard Mirabel's voice. "'Where am I?' he said faintly is it all a dream? The prospect of his recovery the next morning was gloomy indeed. He had sunk into a state of deplorable weakness, in mind as well as in body. The little memory of events that he still preserved was regarded by him as the memory of a dream. He alluded to Emily, and to his meeting with her unexpectedly. But from that point his recollection failed him, they had talked of something interesting he said but he was unable to remember what it was and they had waited together at a railway station but for what purpose he could not tell he sighed and wondered when emily would marry him and so fell asleep again weaker than ever not having any confidence in the doctor at belford mrs delvin had sent an urgent message to a physician at edinburgh famous for his skill in treating disease of the nervous system. "'I cannot expect him to reach this remote place without some delay,' she said. "'I must bear my suspense as well as I can.' "'You should not bear it alone,' Emily answered. "'I will wait with you till the doctor comes.' Mrs. Delvin lifted her frail, wasted hands to Emily's face, drew it a little nearer, And kissed her. End of chapter sixty three.